Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Mark Cortez. Mark is the founder and CEO of Liquidate Water Conservation Company, and he has a ton of firsthand experience in the EV and renewable energy industry. Today on the show, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about energy, we're talking about water. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I thought we could just start out with a little introduction about yourself, just so the listeners know uh, kind of what you've been up to. I've spent a couple of decades now in renewable energy, focused primarily on solar energy, some early uh, stage EV infrastructure back when, when we had infrastructure, but no actual vehicles to charge. So it was really early stage. Um, and then... Um, some energy storage, utility scale energy storage uh, companies and projects. So I've been around the energy and specifically the clean the clean tech energy space for quite a long time. I have a startup company you can see here um, called Liquidate here in California. We're, we live and breathe the drought every day. So I'm trying to bring some of the financial concepts we used in renewable energy, similar to carbon offsets. I'm trying to do that with, with water conservation to try to incentivize companies and people to save water. And then I've written a book and I'm also a, an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship here in uh, in California uh, State uh, Polytechnic University in San Luis Obispo. So I've been around the, uh, the clean tech space for a long time. And you like to discuss climate change at times as well. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. It's a hot topic these days, not uh, no pun intended, but uh, right, it's, uh, it's, you can't even pick up a paper or any article uh, every single day. There's some news about the climate and it's a, it's a very hot topic of conversation amongst a lot of people. And certainly with uh, uh, during election years here in the U.S., it's it's always a big hot topic of conversation. So I, uh, from having worked around it for a long time, I've been a consumer of climate science for decades. Um, and certainly with my experience in installing some of it and um, and you know putting it out there into the world. I have some opinions based on just the combination of those factors. So that's what I started. Uh, and then when I, as I was talking with some of my students here at Cal Poly, I was noticing the effects of some of the, uh, well, uh, for lack of a better way to call it, just the scare tactics that are being used. And I, I took some personal responsibility for that because I spent so much time in the industry trying to avoid exactly that. And so I started to uh, to have some discussions about uh, you know, what's the truth, or at least in search for the truth. What, what do we know? What do we not know? Uh, are we off base? Are we on base? You know, where are we exactly in the climate discussion? And that's what, that's what sort of led me down this path. Where do you think we are? And what do you believe to be? Because for me, I know when I first started looking into this stuff, I didn't realize there was such a controversy and so far, you know, far to this side, far to that side. Some people don't necessarily think that CO2 is doing anything. I think generally what the consensus that I gathered was we all know the, the planet is warming, but we don't necessarily know what is causing it and whether our actions are having any impact on that. I wonder, what's your opinion on that? You know, the, the, the one thing that we know for sure is, is that it's so polarized. Uh, you know, here on, on one side, you have the, the, the alarmists is what I call them, which is, you know, hey, we're all going to be dead by Thursday because of cl- climate change. And then you have the denier side, which is, hey, there's nothing to see here. Uh, you know, let's just keep moving on. And of course, the answer is somewhere in between. Um, CO2 is a natural gas, but it's also something that we add with our energy uses and our consumption. So 
you know, our temperatures rising, it looks like it by, you know, a degree or maybe, you know, just below a couple degrees over the past couple hundred years. Has mankind had some effect on it? Some. Uh, it's not the direct lever that uh, that you'll sometimes hear about, but the real story is somewhere in, the, in between. And so when I set off to write this, I, I set off really to just investigate it because there was a lot of narratives that were out there that I that said, these kind of fly in the face of what I knew my own experience to be. So I said, let me, I, I just want to dig in there because I just want the truth. I want to know what's really going on. And it's been a, it's been a daunting journey to try to get away from the, the two extremes. I'm not on either side. I, you know, I spent 23 years in the solar, the solar business uh, and, and believe that it can be part of the solution. But I also know that it's got some severe limitations and the idea that we're going to solarize the world and then save the planet is, is actually kind of a ridiculous one, if you think about it, because it's, it's intermittent energy and, uh, you know, developing nations, they don't want something that works when it wants to work. They want something that's reliable and cheap. And so, um, so there's all these narratives that kind of conflict. And one of the biggest challenges is, you know, you're not really allowed to have a dialogue about it. You know, people are so entrenched in what they believe um, that you can't even talk to people about it. In my own business, when I talk to people in the solar business, you know, you're not allowed to question it. You're just, you just have to forward uh, this idea that we need more and more and more of this stuff. And it just doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit right, especially when you're starting to see the results like, you know, a whole generation of scared kids that are scared because we've told them to be scared. And man, that's just uncool in my book. You know, scaring kids is not a good outcome. And when that happens, I feel like I, I need to stand up and start questioning things and having other people question. So I think that's the way that you said it is, is a great way to summarize it. It's somewhere in between. And that's why I called my book uh, Journey into the Muddy Climate Middle, because right now it's been these two extreme sides, but we're not making tremendous progress on it from, you know, from any country standpoint. No one's making great progress. And a lot of misinformation, a lot of dollars being spent with not very much effect happening. And so uh, I, I believe that it's a problem that we should address directly. I, be I believe that it's something that it's important, but I also believe that most people don't don't know what the real truth is or how bad it is or could potentially be. And so that that's what really set me down on my journey. So um, so I believe the answer is somewhere in between. Where um, look, we've got eight billion people on the planet. We know that we're having some effect on the Earth. That's just that's just logic and science can support some of that, but. The idea that we're all heading towards climate disaster is uh, is fiction, and it's it's completely untethered in science, and um, so that's that's also fairly shocking to me that uh, that we've allowed this narrative to take hold that really um, is not based in grounded. Uh, what we would call typically uh, empirical, provable science. I think that's a good summary of kind of what's going on from what I can tell. I'm not a scientist. I don't understand the stuff at the scientific level, but I do know that fear sells a, a lot of the time. And I know that fear gets clicks and attention. So um, you're going to get a lot more clicks and opportunities to showcase your articles. If you're going to say something like, oh, the world's going to burn tomorrow, more people are going to look at that for whatever reason, we like to scare ourselves. And it's interesting that you mentioned the intermittency of renewable energy for like solar, for example, because one thing that I've heard a lot is that if we could perhaps store this energy as, and as I know, you're in a storage business as well, at one point, 
we could perhaps send it back into the grid. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about energy storage where we're at now and, and how far we actually have to go to have a grid that works with the intermittency of renewable energy. Uh, whether or not it's solar or wind or any intermittent uh, generation capacity, then you, the way that you fill in the gaps is you store it. And so um, right now, the, the primary way that we're doing that is uh, with the, the burgeoning lithium battery business, but that's just a, in its infancy. I know California has some of the, the biggest installations that there are, but you know that's a heck of a lot of batteries. And, and it's, I mean, right now we don't have anywhere near the global capacity to not only mine all of that lithium, but to build the batteries. Um, and then, of course, you know, we're at the very beginning stages, so we don't know what happens when the batteries at the end of their lifetime. Now, what do you do with them? So, you know, anyone who thinks that uh, solar or wind or batteries are clean should probably watch how they're made because it's similar, like with everything. The first thing that happens is you fire up a big tractor and go mow down a mountain and extract all the minerals from it. And with lithium, it's going to be times a million, right? So I think uh, our ability to satisfy our energy needs with batteries is just microscopic compared to what we need. You know, it'll be part of a solution. I, I believe that we need the whole uh, portfolio approach to managing this. There's nothing wrong with having solar plus wind plus storage plus a bunch of cleaner alternatives onto the grid. It can certainly help over the long time, longer term, but there's no magic bullet here. I think it has to, it has to cut, uh, be deployed where it's appropriate. So I'll give you an example here in California, you know, there's such a, there's such a mad rush to do all this. And, and so got to have more solar, got to have more storage and let's just replace everything with those two, with, you know, solar and storage. Well, we, we also have two nuclear power plants, which has the cleanest footprint CO, from a CO2 perspective of all of that. Uh, and they're both scheduled to be uh, decommissioned. One is San Onofre down in San Diego. One is Diablo Canyon, which is up actually close to where I live. So San Onofre is, is being shut down and they're going to replace it with solar plus storage. And if you do the math, and this is not very, this is not scientific math, this is simple addition. We're, we're going to increase the CO2 footprint from that San Onofre generation capacity by about six to 700%. So we're actually going, we're actually making the problem a lot worse because you're replacing something that's really clean, nuclear, most people don't think of it that way, but nuclear is one of the cleanest energy sources we have. And then you're, you're replacing it with solar plus storage, which are uh, hundreds of percent dirtier from a CO2 perspective. So, and we're doing it just because we're so panicked about it that we feel like we have to do something. And so the second plant, Diablo Canyon, that they were getting ready to shut down, they said, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should reconsider this. Maybe we should, uh, maybe it's not uh, the complete answer to everything. So they've actually voted to keep that plant open for a few more years because there's all kinds of downsides to that too. So, so I think this blind rush towards spending lots of money and just throwing all these solutions out there um, are just having all kinds of, of negative effects. So uh, they're not having they're not having the good effects that we think that they're supposed to have. I can't take credit for this thought, but I read uh, somewhere somebody said if we discovered fission today, we would likely be jumping in there claiming we solved the climate crisis because it's a you know low. CO2 emitting energy like there's barely there's no CO2 in the actual fission process it's just yeah. you know building the plant and all of those things a little bit misplaced to go after nuclear in this moment and a big reason why I like to look at these you know major macro factors is because from an investment point of view for example we have this ESG movement going on 
everybody's piling into solar and they're piling into wind. But as you know, funding starts to get a little bit more stringent and the microscope starts getting tighter on these industries, some of the lithium mining production, for example, they might start losing some of that funding and yeah. it, it might move over into something like nuclear. So when, when you take a look at the big picture and from an investment perspective, what kind of industries do you think we should be looking at moving forward? You know, I, I, I get into these discussions sometimes and people will say, well, this energy stories, you know, this is, this is a better value than this and that. And uh, every energy source is economical if the government underwrites it. So, <laughs> so it's sort of this weird argument where, like, for example, people say, hey, uh, Teslas are already cheaper than X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, no, they're not because... Every Tesla has twenty to thirty thousand dollars of public money just slapped to the side of it. It's our money that we're paying for it. So, and that money's not going to poor people. That money's going to to rich people who can afford Teslas. You know, so so um, right now the you know people are chasing the government-run investment dollars because we're just pouring money into these things. So I, I think the investment world right rightfully follows that money and says, well, you know, who cares if it's right or wrong? I'm not saying that they all say that, but you know, let's follow the investment money. And, you know, if the government is underwriting it, then that that is just one more risk factor that gets lowered for them. So I totally get it. I, I understand that completely. It's um, the question become th that I always ask is, is it really having the effect that you want? Is is giving every Tesla twenty to $30,000 of public tax money, is it doing anything to lower temperature? Is it doing is it having any effect on CO2? And is it a good spend from the public standpoint? And that's those are those are different questions than whether or not the investment makes sense. So, you know, with most solar large utility scale solar projects, I think most of them, if you lay it out over 20 years, most of them make a pretty good rate of return. But there's a whole cascade of incentives, tax credits, uh, rebates, and things like that that go into that that enable that. So um, so it's hard to single out one factor and say, well, this. This makes perfect financial sense, but um, as to your point, I think you know everyone's chasing the the government-run ESG dollars, and so those things will, you know, as long as the government's pouring billions and trillions of dollars into that, I imagine that the investors will will also do the same thing. Sometimes it's about the flow of cash rather than the legitimacy of the movement. I do wonder sometimes with electric vehicles. A thought that I had was. Is it possible that they're incentivizing these vehicles so much because they have a greater plan to use those batteries, our own personal vehicle batteries, as a backup storage system for intermittent power? I mean, that sounds like a pretty interesting solution. I think um, it remains to be seen. I think uh, like here in California, where we have the most electric vehicles that you know, people keep saying, well, hey, you know, if we have more electric vehicles, then we could prevent blackouts. And I, so I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion of, okay, show us, <laughs> you know, prove it. So uh, right now, I mean, it's, it looks great on paper. And this is, this is one of the big challenges with the climate is most of it is a spreadsheet exercise. And when I say spreadsheet exercise is you do, you've got a bunch of really smart people and, and, and looking at numbers and, you know, they look into the future and they say, well, here's a bunch of bad stuff that could potentially happen in the future. And so if you just move the, the pieces around the chessboard and make those future stuff look potentially less bad, there, we've solved our problem. And it's just sort of this funny math. I call it in my book, I'll, I call it climate accounting, which is just you take credit for, for bad stuff that potentially you're avoiding in the future. You're taking credit for that today and act as if you've made things actually better. 
when you haven't. So to your question, can it work? Sure. Is it working now? No, not even close. And so are there enough vehicles out there that can potentially make a dent? No, there, there's not even anywhere near that uh, in order to be able to have the grid use it. But it's an interesting concept. I, th- I think you're starting to see a couple of companies that are starting to do that, saying, turn, turn your Ford F-150 EV truck into uh, an energy storage system for your house, which, which could make a lot of sense. So I, I, I would love to see it. If, uh, if it's going to happen, I would love to see it as a regular solution out there. Something that I kind of found interesting with the whole movement was that, and I'm not sure their grid could support it anyways, if they were trying to take energy back into the grid, but maybe just for each household, they could use it as a, as a backup, as you say, to avoid blackouts. Just something else that I was sort of wondering with the climate. I've done a lot of work on carbon credits yeah. and I've seen some plastic credits out there. And I, I know your company works with water conservation credits. It just got me kind of wondering, like, what, in your opinion, is actually affecting the climate? Because it's possible, you know, if we move forward, we find that perhaps CO2 isn't doing as much damage as, say, methane or, you know, some of these other gases that are just like sulfur hexafluoride or whatever that one is that is, it provides this major greenhouse effect and warming. Perhaps there's some other industries that I could be looking at that could get those incentives, as you say, from the government once they start to learn what's actually having a greater impact. That question goes into the heart of, is mankind changing the temperature complexity? Is that, are we the main culprits? Or are we the main cause of global temperature rise? And so that is a complex question. And I say it should be very straightforward based on all the work that's out there, all the narratives that are out there. That should be something that, you know, that you can look up and, and just find an immediate answer to. Sure, there's, there's tons of science that supports that. And what I found was the opposite, that it's not, it's not that way at all, that there is still, that is still being fundamentally debated. How much of an impact are, is CO2 have, of man-made CO2 having on the environment. You know, for thousands, actually not thousands, for millions of years, it was actually the opposite. Uh, Before mankind ever came about, CO2 rise followed temperature rise. So think about that. It's the exact opposite. And then once we got involved, and once mankind started burning stuff and adding our own uh, levels of CO2, science flipped that. And they said, well, now that we're here, all of that stuff is now opposite. (laughs) So now CO2, we think is causing temperatures rise, even though for the entire history of our entire planet, it's been the opposite. And that was that was sort of fundamental. So some at some point we think that it flipped, although there's really no evidence that shows that. And and there's not there's not a scientific basis for that. So I look at it sort of as a sliding lever. There are times when, you know, if you talk to the true believers in this, they will say CO2 is the main lever uh, of rising temperatures. If you talk to other people on the right, you'll, they'll say it has no effect whatsoever. The answer is somewhere in between, and we don't really know. And there's not science that shows direct cause and effect. Even here's here what was surprising for me when I was reviewing uh, a lot of this stuff. You know, if if you read what what you read in the media, if you read the the standard New York Times and Washington Post and CNN, it's unequivocal. That's the word I always hear. It's unequivocal. Mankind is causing the planet to warm at a deathly speed. And like I go to the government websites, even the EPA itself, right? The Environmental Protection Agency on their website, it says very clearly, we can't really prove that CO2 causes temperatures to rise. It's really extremely difficult to prove that. So wait a sec. (laughs) 
if the people whose job it is, is, is saying that, is just admitting that we can't quite be sure that that's doing that, then, then how is that a scientific given? So it's pretty difficult. And, you know, um, it's, it's a really difficult and muddied um, picture of how, this, of how this happens. So to answer your question, if all of a sudden we find out that CO2 isn't the culprit, how can any of the other man-made gases be the culprit? If that's true, the, truly the case, how could methane or any of the other four, you know, supposedly toxic man-made chemicals, how could that be the main driver? If, if we've been following and chasing CO2 for decades and that proves to be false, how can the other ones using the same logic, how can the other ones be the main fault of that? You have to say, you know, the Earth's natural cycle is by far the primary driver of climate change um, and we're just along for the ride. You'd have to con- come to that conclusion. So, but again, I, you know, I think from an investment standpoint, um, that's not going to happen anytime in the next couple decades. You can't see that because that would mean a whole bunch of people uh, were really wrong about this stuff. And the chances of that suddenly happening are probably not, not that great. So I, I still think that the investment dollars are going to be flowing into where they're flowing. We're not going to do a sudden switch on what we think the potential solutions are until we've had enough information that shows that maybe they're not working as well as we think they should. I agree. It's going to be a hard task for anybody to try to turn around their opinion on that, especially they're fully committed, it seems, yeah. both on both sides. You know, it would be hard for somebody to come out and say, you know what, you were right, CO2 is warming the planet. We need to go full renewables. And then on the other side, somebody to say, you know, you're right, CO2 isn't warming the planet. We've done this all wrong. We can go back to coal. No big deal. Well, and, and so on, on that point, I think um, let's assume, and what I do in my book is I, you know, you can't really prove that causation, but let's just wear, wear our logic hats here. You know, chances are pretty good that CO2 is heating the planet. There is some science that supports some of that. So let's assume that it's a big deal. And I, I do believe that we are having an effect on the climate and that burning all this bad stuff is certainly not helping. And so it's, uh, you know, CO2, just having CO2 go into the atmosphere, you know, unmitigated is not a good thing. So that leads you to the next step, which is, so what are the answers to that? Well, replacing bad energy sources with potentially less worse energy sources is also not the answer. You know, replacing a coal plant with a bunch of solar or windmills isn't making CO2 less. It's making potentially future CO2 less worse. But the net effect, like like today, if you went and installed a solar system on your house or a building, you have added CO2 because solar has a CO2 footprint. So total CO2 will have gone up. You didn't remove any because it doesn't remove CO2. So every energy source that goes out there and gets added to the grid increases total CO2 levels. It's just true. So if, if we really, let's all of a sudden say, say the world is so concerned about CO2 that we have to stop it and you know, start to lower our total CO2 levels, renewables doesn't do that because it just continues to add. It just slows the growth of it. It just, it goes from, you know, this, this much of a ramp of CO2 levels to this much of a ramp. It's like the joke I use in my book is saying, you know, if you're trying to lose, let's say you're, you're hundred pounds overweight uh, and you have a 20 donut a day habit. So renewables is like dropping that consumption down from 20 donuts a day to five donuts a day. And then, then giving yourself credit for 15 donuts a day worth of savings. It's that sort of logic, right? You're still five donuts a day fatter. And so with all these other additional energy sources, we're still adding more CO2 sources to the grid. And so 
if we do have to get really concerned about CO2, then we have to start removing it. We have to start uh, literally just taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. We can't, you can't slow, you can't just slow the, sl slow it down and expect somehow for the entire total to go down because it just, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I am curious to know in your, in your studies, did you find any research that would kind of analyze the cradle to grave megawatt to megawatt for various energy sources? So for example, you know, one megawatt of solar energy, what's the carbon footprint of that cradle to yeah. grave when you think about the production, the mining yeah. of the minerals, recycling after the fact, transportation to where it needs to go in comparison to one megawatt coming out of a natural gas plant, for example? In fact, I have a chart in there um, in my book. And so, you know, coal is by far the worst in terms of, of the amount of it's something like 1700 grams per kilowatt hour. And then gas is down to about 800. And solar is about 40 to 45, depending on where it goes, grams of CO2 emission per kilowatt hour of production. Uh, wind is a, a bit less than that. Nuclear is down like 14 or 15, right? So it's it's about three times less than 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 solar. And hydro is the uh, is the least, which has about 11, but that has some geographic constraints um, as well. So so there's a whole hierarchy. But um, uh, and EVs, you know, are EVs are EVs. Uh, so depending on how far you drive them, so it's it's a whole continuum. It goes, you know, coal. You know, I'm not a defender of any particular energy source. Coal just Burning coal and spinning it into the sky, of course, it's not good. Is there a way to make it better? Is uh, is there a way to capture the carbon from that? Probably. Um, and would it make some sense? Sure. Um, but there's a whole continuum. But there's um, what I always push against is there's no such thing as a green energy source. It doesn't exist because every energy source adds CO2, every single one of them. It's just, it's not their fault. They're not built to lower CO2. They're built to produce energy. And so in that transition from one uh, physical shape to something else that produces energy. Um, it's just physics. It, it changes and you, uh, you, you make CO2 with it. So there's a whole hierarchy, but on the spectrum of things, I'd say solar is maybe fourth or fifth best windmills or I think fourth, but nuclear and hydro are just way down at the bottom. They're, they're the cleanest. That kind of brings me into the next topic. When you think about climate change, obviously it can interrupt water supply for various parts of the world. I know in California, as you say, you guys have had your issues. And something that I was reading about was nuclear desalination. And I wonder if you think that could be an option because you, you know, you build a nuclear plant, it's providing you energy, any surplus of energy can be used to clean the water. I think that that could be something we see in the future. What are your thoughts on that? Near the second uh, nuclear plant that I just told you about called Diablo Canyon, there's a big push to put desal in there as well. I'm not close enough to desal, so I don't want to uh, take any hardcore opinions about this. But uh, of course, it seems to make logical sense. I have heard that the removal of, of all that salt water has a bunch of environmental impacts as well. So if you're just spitting that brine back into the ocean, there's a wildlife factor. And so I don't know enough about it. I hear I hear from people in the water business, they don't love it. So it, it feels like there's a step change technology that's needed to really make it not only economical, but technically feasible and less corrosive for a better better way to say it. So I've heard about it just like yourself. I don't know. Uh, I'm not that close to it to, to be able to have a strong opinion about it one way or the other, but I know it's being pursued. And I think we have we have the perfect geography here 
to attempt to, to do something like that because we're in the middle of ag country. We have lots of energy use and we have severe water problems. So where are we at with water at the moment? What's the sort of leading technology to get fresh water and what are some of the t- technologies on the horizon? My company is called Liquidate. I latched onto the financial engineering components that came from the solar business because I, I believe that uh, these financial, I mean, there wasn't a lot of innovation in solar. I mean, solar is 50, 60 year old technology. It's pretty boring stuff. Um, but the real innovation came with the financial stuff on the power purchase agreements and the way, the ways that you could uh, financially stimulate energy demand and production and things like that. So I, I was a believer in those concepts. So I'm bringing those into water conservation. And my assumption initially going in well was, well, it's all part of the energy continuum. But water is very different in terms of, uh, you know, if, if I thought that old style electric utilities were old school, water is way old school. So super conservative, getting water from point A to point B is a really big deal. You know, as you can expect, you know, it's mostly political. Um, you know, it's, I mean, people will fight, you know, the top of that, that mountaintop over there, if, you know, if you're fifth down on the water table of that, it's all, you know, it's just a pecking order. And so it's a very old school way of thinking about water. So um, I don't know that we're solving it with technology. I think we're, we're looking at different ways to store water, to capture it in, in California. You know, the good news is starting to put some financial mechanisms in to have people save water, to penalize people who they think are over users. And so we're starting to get that, which I think is good. I think you know, putting putting financial incentives and penalties onto anything will at least get people's attention to you know change their behavior or at least uh, make them aware of how they use water because water is pretty much forgotten you know we don't really think too much about it until we have to turn off the spigot and then it's a really big deal but i don't see you know i, I see desal technologies but they still seem to not be able to um, uncover or uh, get over the hurdle with the the environmental brine issue on the back end. So I think incremental progress, but nothing that is really a game changer so far. I think that's really interesting how you say water is forgotten because you're right. I turn the top on and it's there. And I think it's very similar to turning the lights on. And in Europe, for example, they're dealing with their energy crisis and they're starting to see what that can look like and what a world that doesn't have free flowing energy and a surplus and cheap, reliable energy, what that looks like. And it does seem like from what I've read, and here we are at fear articles again, but we could get to a place like that in the world with water. Where are we at with water right now? Is there still a surplus? Are we good for a decade or, or should we really be starting to look at this a bit closer? You know, I think on the West Coast, it's been part of our DNA for so long that, you know, we, we draw most of our water from the Colorado River. But, um, you know, I, I think probably the truest statement about uh, water is we're just increasing demand because more and more people are coming and moving around Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, we're starting to give more people access to the Colorado River. So um, water saving is becoming a much bigger deal. And, you know, it's a concern. It's it's definitely a concern. I um, I don't know that we've come close to cracking you know, cracking the code on this, we're, we're still trying a bunch of different things. But at the end of the day, conservation is going to have to be a big part of it. It's, you know, being aware of it, using less water, putting some financial incentives uh, for both saving, but also penalizing those for who use too much. 
um, and and really just continuing to be diligent about that. I, I don't know that, you know, the other thing I found out, out about, you know, with electricity, you know, the metering infrastructure is pretty good. You can actually get a lot of really good data about how much energy is being used. Not so with water. Really, it's amazing to me. Um, smart meters, very small minority of the population, commercial or residential, have dynamic information, you know, technology that can that can provide meter reads and things like that. It's still guys in mopeds going around reading meters, and that's phenomenal to me for some, such an important commodity like water. So the the metering infrastructure is lagging so far behind. You know, a lot of it we're still just guessing at. We're still just guessing at, at how much water there is that's being used. So that's. That's been one of the challenges that we've had in trying to, to put this out there is um, you know, how do you get accurate water usage information? And uh, you're starting to see more companies. We know of a couple of companies that are, are you know, using retrofit water metering uh, devices that strap onto your water meter and can provide that electronic interface. But it's still few and far between. It's still in a very big minority. These companies that come in and install smart meters, for example, they could be creating a similar credit to a carbon credit sometimes. I know your company does that as well with the water conservation credits. I'm just curious how some companies could get those or what they may do if it's a well, similar kind of landscape as carbon. Yeah, there's a company um, that was started here actually right by some students at Cal Poly called Flume flume water and it's literally just a strap-on box that you strap onto your your home water meter and it is able to detect uh how much you know the flow be coming through that main water valve and then they have an app and it makes it readily available to you so you're starting to see more products like that my company um uses that data that's that's where we start is we get the data uh, right now we can either get it from some automatic systems like that, or we could actually go from company's utility bills and pull it off that information in order to create credits uh, and sell those to other companies to to sort of uh, have a community approach to saving water. But um, that's, you know, as this infrastructure evolves, I think I think you're going to start seeing more of that, you know, having communities band together to help save water. Uh, you see, you know, it's been around for a while uh, already. Um, you know, actually here in San Luis Obispo, because we've had such a slow growth development approach to things, um, we'd have new developers come into town and say, hey, I want to put build 200 homes here. And the, the city would say, well, great. You got to show us how you're going to find an, enough water for those 200 homes. And so they were pretty creative. They went through and they said, all right, we're going to go and we're going to retrofit all of the toilets in homes in San Luis Obispo with low flow toilets. And they paid for it themselves. So they went door to door, ringing doorbells and hired plumbers to say, we will replace your toilet for free with low flow toilets. And then they, they added all those things up and they went to the city and said, okay, you know, we re replaced the toilets of a thousand homes. We've saved you from having to provide that water. Give us the permits. And it worked. And that's, so that's essentially the same sort of concept. We've uh, kind of run dry on that approach now because all of the toilets, you know, everything has been retrofitted already. So we're, we're kind of now looking for other options, but um it's been used before, so the concept can work uh, quite well. I know with carbon, with their credits, they, they have to be additional reductions. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's kind of a similar regulatory framework where you can't just say, well, I put in this low flow toilet when they already had one. One of the interesting things about uh, the water market is uh, similar to carbon, which is there's two really two markets. There's the regulatory market, which is the government setting regulations and setting thresholds and giving you basically a budget to meet or not meet. And then there's the voluntary market, which is just 
you know, you do it outside of any regulatory framework. Right now, we don't really have either of those in, in California, or there's not a regulatory framework yet to do that. So we're, we're approaching the voluntary market. We're saying there's a lot of value in, you know, company one, you know, buying companies two through 10 water savings uh, and being able to manage the entire watershed in the lo that certain locality, you know, doing it, you know, completely without regulatory, what's the word I'm looking for? Oversight, I guess, without, without having a, the regulatory uh, environment needed to do that. And I think that's where, assuming that this works, and I think it will, um, I think that's where the real power of this, because then you really get to democratizing water. You know, you get, you get people, uh, people changing their behavior, changing their company's behavior towards some common goals. Um, and that's, that's a pretty powerful thing. For sure. I think that's really interesting. And I like kind of diving into different worlds of water and carbon and you know plastic credits are another thing that i think could could have some potential moving forward especially like as i said you know possibly we find that the effects on the reef and all these things are maybe more so due to plastic than carbon mm, yeah. you could see you could see some funding flowing into those kind of programs and i haven't heard of plastic credits but when you said that earlier it's a Similar concept, and I think it's fascinating. I think uh, these kinds of mechanisms can work. I know that there's been a lot of fraud, and there's potential for greenwashing and all that kind of stuff. But you know, my my view is, you know, once you make people responsible with their money, things change. It's just been true. <laughs> this is not rocket science, right? If you if you affect people's pocketbooks positively or negatively, stuff changes. And so I always look at it from that standpoint. If you want people to change their behavior. Pay them, you know. If uh, the, to me, the best pol policy from the government don't incentivize them to buy more stuff like we're doing now with all all of these new incentives. We're just it's just consumption expansion. We're just paying people to consume more stuff, which is how we got into this problem in the first place. If you want to save CO two, pay people to save. You know, pay people to, to use less stuff. And the more you save, the more money you make. You know, it's just I, I think it's just we're doing things from a backwards standpoint. So. I love the idea of plastic credits. I think that's a great idea. Same here. I think that if you can incentivize whatever it happens to be as far as environmental impact in a good way, people are going to do it. They're going to pay attention at least. And, you know, I know for me, like I, I don't know nearly enough about climate change to make a decision one way or the other. And I'm frankly surprised at how much debate is ongoing with this because as you say we should know this by now and the yeah. more I look apparently we don't but I'm just like for me I just I just follow the money I'm like if carbon offsets are going to be the thing then I'm going to go invest in there and yeah. you know water though does seem a lot more straightforward because if you conserve water then you're going to have more it's just kind of black and white, you know what I mean? Unless you can figure out a way to make more water, that's a whole different thing. For sure. So yeah, with that being said, I think this has been a great pod. A lot of great discussion here. Certainly giant macro factors that we really need to consider. Yeah. But uh, also, we brought it down to the smaller world of water and where you work, obviously. So I appreciate that because it's always nice to speak with somebody who's an expert in their field. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to let anybody know where they can find your work or perhaps some of your content and your book. Oh, sure. I, uh, the name of my book is called Climaturity, A Journey into the Muddy Climate Middle. So uh, climaturity is a word I made up, of course. So uh, a mashup of climate and maturity. Uh, you can find it on climaturity.com or find it on Amazon. It's uh, actually just came out with uh, it's a Kindle and paperback, but also an audio version of the book, too. We uh, found a great voice actor who did a great job with it and made uh, scientific talk even sound interesting and uh, uh, digestible. So I was 
happy with that. And um, and I do a lot of writing on LinkedIn, just various posts about energy policy and things like that. So always love a good discussion. I, you know, I believe that we have to be doing exactly what we're doing, which is having an open discussion, but we also have to be willing to be wrong about this. You know, we can't be so entrenched that uh, we just do the opposite of things, even in the face of all this flying evidence. And I know people might yell at me for saying that, well, we know that we're killing the planet and, you know, so you, you should be changing your opinion. But my opinion has come from, you know, years and decades of working in this industry where it's a lot of this stuff just doesn't sound right. So I think that the only way that we can solve this is I'm a big believer in bipartisanship. I don't think any climate policy works without both sides supporting it here in the U.S., uh, maybe three up there in Canada. Um, I think you need all people on board because it's a global problem. And if only half the world wants it, then it'll never never make any progress on it. So I, uh, I keep, I, I, you know, I, I view things like what you're doing here as, as very germane to helping solve this entire problem. Thank you. Yes, I agree. I think that just having an open mind to issues in general is probably the best way to go. That's what I try to do. I'd like to listen to both sides because you never know. And if you get stuck on one side, then you, you may never find the real truth. So yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for coming on the show and really appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much, Joe. Take care and I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no worries. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show, so do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. 